never mentions the word addiction in certain company. Yes, she tell you she's an orphan after you meet her family. The first bonus episode of the Dopey Podcast is brought to you by none other than Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, in Malibu, Aloe is created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Evan, Jared, and Bob to treat addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades of experience in treating addiction including co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI, which, of course, is severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical when you're kicking alcohol or benzos or heroin or even cocaine, or as they say in the streets, yayo. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. They have a sound bath meditation. They have a super spiritual sweat lodge. They have surfing. They have equine therapy. If you're fucked and you need a place to go to get some help, I highly, highly, most strongly recommend Aloe Recovery. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of Patreon. If you're a high-level $10 or more subscriber to Patreon, you're getting this bonus episode one month before the suckers who don't subscribe. If you're kicking in 5 bucks, oh, you're also getting a fucking pack of stickers if you're kicking in that 10 bucks, And you might get something else one day. If you're kicking in 5 you get to go to the crazy, fun, dopey Patreon Zoom. Me and Ray just had an incredible dopey patreon stash word zoom where we had a game show there was a winner there are prizes that the winner is gonna get wouldn't you like to get prizes at the two dollar level you get four extra episodes of dopey on patreon every month now that's not something to sneeze about it's pretty impressive patreon stuff we also of course have incredible dopey merchandise uh, we're in the last week of the Misfits-based Skull Dopey hoodie and the Skull Dopey crew neck and the Skull Dopey t-shirt. There's obviously a ton of other awesome merchandise at dopeypodcast.com. We're in a partnership with a printing merchandise company out of Cincinnati made up of a couple of recovering heroin addicts as well from a company called SRO Printing. Also, if you want beanies or snapbacks or stickers, just Venmo me at Dopey Podcast. Enough with the ads. Here is the bonus episode. Hello, and welcome to the first ever bonus episode of Dopey, the podcast about drugs, 
addiction and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I'm ridiculously excited to put out our first bonus episode. If it was up to me, I would put out five episodes a week that would all be three hours long. And uh, and Dopey would be like, you know, it would be a big deal. It would be a bigger deal than it is. And we'd have guests and games and a TV show and a film in the works and bands coming into the studio. But so for now, we, we're going to add a fifth episode to the month, which I am thrilled to pieces about. And something else that I am super excited about is coming soon, coming very soon. It's DopeyCon 2. DopeyCon 2. We have been working our fingers to the bone on this thing. And if it's even half as good as we hope it will be, it will blow the brains out of your ears. That's how good I expect DopeyCon 2 to be. There will be special guests, musical performances, crazy stories, the Dopey Nation, and much more on DopeyCon 2. Coming in about a month. I hope you guys are ready. It's going to be pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty exciting. And what else is pretty exciting? It's the fucking bonus episode. And who do we have on the bonus episode? It is none other than the drummer from one of, for my money, one of my favorite bands, one of the greatest bands in uh, rock and roll history, definitely in American history, definitely top five bands of uh, the past 30 years, I would say. I would say top five bands. Who are the top five bands of the past 30 years? We have Nirvana, right? I guess, is Oasis one of the top five bands? I don't know. Um, who are the top five bands of the past 30 years? Send in a, a fucking email, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Hip-hop bands don't count, okay? Forget hip-hop groups. They don't count. Who are the top five bands of the past 30 years? I don't even know. But I would definitely say that the Black Crows are at the top of the list or close to it. And this dude is one of the founding fathers of the Black Crows. Him and Chris and Rich Robinson put this band together. And he, he tells the Dopey Nation, he tells us about the band, its rise and its fall. He wrote a book. It was called Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. And it's pretty amazing. I totally recommend reading it. He also hosts a radio show called Steve Gorman Rocks on Westwood One, and he has a sports radio show called Steve Gorman Sports. It was awesome to have him on the show. Enough talking about having him on the show. Here he is, the great Steve Gorman. All right, so this is incredibly thrilling for me. Via Skype, I have the great Steve Gorman from Black Crows coming to me from Nashville. How are you, Steve? Uh, So far, so good, man. You know, right. I mean, it's uh, it's Wednesday, and I only know that because I'm looking at my laptop, and it says WED, so I know what day it is. Well, you said you work from home anyway, so how different is it? You know, I it's 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 just the fact that every day it's harder and harder to discern from days to days. You know, the only difference. I mean, everybody knows the weekend, generally speaking, but I get it. My life has been blending together too. It's crazy. It's like pastel and me smearing it with my thumb. And luckily, I've been working from home for a little while, too. But let's jump right into it. I was a waiter at Katz's for 10 years. And like, I want to say eight years ago, Chris Robinson walks into Katz's. He sits down at my table with his son. And I'm like, holy shit, it's fucking Chris Robinson. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was waiting for him to be a dick. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he was.
wasn't. He was he was super cool and he was into it. And um, and what I said to him is, I went to college um, a million years ago, and my room and I think the Black Crows had two records out when I went to college, mm-hmm. and my roommate okay. had thirty six bootlegs. You know, he was he <laughs> yeah. was so obsessed with you guys. It was yeah. like it was like so. I I'm pretty intimate with your guys' music. I'm a huge fan. Um, or the Black Crows music, and I'm a huge fan of yours. And um, yep. I also remember when I was in high school, I was like doing my laundry and watching MTV, and Kurt Loder comes on, and he's like, oh, there's this band called the Black Crows, and I see you guys, and, and Chris Robinson's like, oh, we came to New York, and we thought no one would like us, and now everyone's handing us deli trays. And I was like, what the fuck <laughs> is this? And it was like hair metal metal pop all this shit was happening and then you guys sounded like rock and roll and i was a rock and roll fan and it was like holy shit and it was it was an amazing thing that happened and i and i commend you and i thank you for being part of it yeah it was well it was amazing to us too trust me when we were making that record in 1989 the last thing we thought would be that we'd find a big audience you know that was we were at we were a band that you know we weren't paying attention to MTV and rock radio in, in 1989, you know, the stuff that was there was, we would make fun of it before we would actually listen to it. So, you know, when, when a year later you flash forward and we're out opening for Aerosmith and hard to handles getting played every five minutes on MTV, we were, we were beyond mystified. We just were like, what in the hell is happening? I mean, we were excited and uh, you know, but, but we also, it was, it was just, not at all what we thought was even possible. It's not that we out went past what we dreamed of. We didn't even dream of any kind of success. We just wanted to get on the road and play some shows and see what would happen. The music felt good though. I mean, when hard to handle yeah. hit, like it, it was like at our high school dance and hard to handle would come out, come on and like amidst a bunch of hip hop songs, like everybody would still dance and everybody loved it. And it was like, it was inspirational to me because I also loved blues music and and down home rock and roll music and soul music. And I was like, Holy shit, there's a band that's doing it. And I know you've, you've been interviewed, you know, a billion times over the past 30 years. And somebody has probably said this to you every time, but it's an inspiration. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. Um, no, trust me, it doesn't get old hearing that. I mean, that's, you know, I'm still inspired by the albums that have always inspired me. So to just be, and I don't look at it as, uh, th- that's how I see it. If somebody's talking about the Black Crows being an inspiration, it just means we've been added. We're just a boxcar on a very long train. You know what I mean? It's not about us. It's about just getting a, to be a part of that, that, that long lineage. You know what I mean? And I, the day our first album came out, I was still working at a used record store and I was putting my own album in the bins that morning. And it, it was, it was two things. One, I thought I didn't expect this to be what I would be doing when my album came out, but I also felt pretty amazing. Cause I was just, you know, we didn't have a black crows tab. I just put it in B, you know, the B random section under the letter B, but you know, I'm flipping through that and I'm like, well, there's big star and, there's Black Sabbath and there's Badfinger and there's the Bee Gees and then there's my band. Holy crap. You know, I mean, that that that's so when people say the things you just said, I still go back to that thinking. We're just a piece of it. And that's that's all we could ever hope for. Not to mention the Beatles is on. You're in the same fucking they had, world. They had their own tab. Well, they they, yeah, they, they sure. weren't in the random bees. They had their own world. Trust me. Black Sabbath <laughs> didn't have their own tab in your record store. I don't think so. All right. I don't think they did at that time. And um, obviously, 
uh, my little show is all about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And, um, you know, the Black Crows became incredibly, like, achieved notoriety as being this wild, drug-taking, raucous band. And I know that wasn't yeah. really your place in the band. So, like, when, when the band started, was taking drugs a big part of it? No, not at all. I mean, and I, in the book I wrote, you know, I talk about the fact that I moved to Atlanta to start a different band. And one of the things that that ran me out of that band very early on was that the other guys were taking a lot of drugs. And that just wasn't something I was into. into. Um, you know, I was all for drinking a bunch of beer, you know, get, you know, I, I was happy to get drunk at any time. But when you added drugs to it, it just didn't work for me. It just wasn't my scene. And um. You know, there was other reasons, too, but that was one of the things. When I was first, uh, and Chris was my roommate, we had this house together, and we, you know, we had the two guys that smoked and the two guys that didn't smoke. So Chris and I, because neither one of us smoked cigarettes, we, we ended up sharing a room in this house. And both of our bands rehearsed there. I mean, it was a good rock and roll flop house, you know, like, a, like something you'd see in a movie that was really cool and fun to be a part of. And, um, but the drug scene then there were people doing drugs all around me, but it just never was something that appealed to me. And as the years progressed, once I switched bands, one of my initial attractions to what was then called Mr. Crow's Garden was that Chris just drank, you know, he didn't even smoke pot then. Okay. And we, we drank a lot together now. I mean, you know, obviously on a certain level, alcohol is, you know, it, it's just a drug like any other, but it was one that I was familiar with and that I understood a little better. And the other things I didn't, I didn't, not only was I not aware of and I didn't have insight into, I just wasn't interested in. Um, Your band was, was, my exper- uh, was Mary, my hope. That right. Was called? And, exactly. and, and there were a bunch of acid heads. Was that the deal? They started tripping and couple, you were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The couple of those guys, they were doing a lot of that. And I just, you know, when you've never done acid and you're sitting around with people on acid, it's kind of funny, but at the same time, it, it, it didn't take long before it got to a point where I was like, wait, is this real? This is your reality. And I, I'm not digging this, man. I don't I, I was very ambitious, you know, looking back. I wouldn't have said that at the time. And I certainly wouldn't have said this either. But I was very desperate to get something going like I was all about let's let's get serious. Let's do this. Let's let's get out and book some gigs and let's work hard um, and let's have a great time doing it. But let's let's not let the other things get in the way. And so very early on. I don't think the guys in Mary, my hope were necessarily at that point in a bad place, but just from where I was coming from, it was scary to me. Um, they, they had their shit together. They knew what they were doing because they had experience with drugs. But as a guy that had never been around any of that, it just, it just turned me off. And so it's funny to say now, but you know, Chris and I were just drinkers and, and the music was a little more straight ahead too. Mary, my hope was way more ambitious musically. So all that, kind of added up to me thinking Mr. Crow's garden makes a little more sense for me right now. Um, because it was like straight ahead rock and roll kind of thing. Yeah. It was easier to play. I had just started playing. I mean, I just bought my first kit, you know, so it was easier to play, but again, there was just a, there was a few things. There was a, a few elements and that desperation. I felt that from Chris for sure. I, I felt it from rich, you know, in very different ways. And I just felt the three of us had a, a certain chemistry that it just made sense in a way that I couldn't have explained at the time. And looking back, it's easy to say, oh, we shared a desperation that, that we, you know, we didn't have a plan B. We were never people that would have had, you know, a, a backup. And that's, that's what I need. I needed to feel that, I think, looking back. And I also, you know, um, and this speaks a little bit to what, what later became both a strength and a weakness to me, 
which is something I la- much later identified as codependency, which is I felt like those guys need me. Like I can help them. I can, you know, Chris is a little bit of a wild card. He's going to need someone like me to, 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 to get him through some weirdness. You know, he needs a, he needs a stable, strong person in his life. Um, and you know, at the time I didn't see that at all. I was just, this guy's my friend. I'm all about the team. Let's go, you know? Um, and so it, it was, it, it was a, it was the hardest and the easiest decision I've ever made at the same time to switch bands. But all that to say, so when Mr. Crow's garden was a local band, there were no drugs. It was just a lot of alcohol, but no, nothing else. Um, by the time our first record came out, there was a little bit of, of pot smoking, but that was really it. Once you hit the road for two years, obviously things change pretty quickly. What do you think um, it and was? Then, that, and then there was a lot of drugs around. What do you think it was that turned you guys into the, or, or turned Chris into like the quintessential stoner or just the black crows becoming this kind of stoner experience? You know, like what, what culturally shifted? Well, I, th- I mean, you know, everybody would have their own idea of that. I think the music that we were listening to and most inspired by was just bands you know, on a live setting, you know, we were listening to a ton of, of Led Zeppelin, Little Feet, Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers, all bands that jam live. It's just a part of that kind of culture and where we were sliding towards musically. It wasn't a conscious decision. I don't think that anybody ever made like, let's get into the drug scene. It's just one of those (laughs) inevitabilities that when you're a rock band on the road and everybody's offering you drugs all the time, people start taking them. And, and like, you know, my opinion on all that stuff has always been, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I, because I just never did a drug that made me want to keep doing it. You know, I would try drugs and I would have, a, I could have a, 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 a good time. I could enjoy it, but I didn't wake up the next day once and think I got to do that again. It was always, okay, that was cool. Now it's a different day. And, um, you know, that's, that's very much to me. That's just a, a lucky card in the pack for me to have drawn in life. Definitely. Because I mean, as a drug addict, you know, I lost, half of my life, you know, to, to drug use. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm a very ambitious person and I was always a very ambitious person, but exactly what you described that didn't happen to you totally happened to me, you know? And, right. and, and I was like, I remember when I first started smoking weed and I was like, I, I need to do this every day. And then I remember when yeah. I, when I, when I got comfortable taking heroin, I had the same exact reaction and, um, right. which is, you know, terrifying. Um, and, uh, and you, but you dream of it. Like I'm a, a musician, I'm a total amateur musician and a songwriter and I've played in bands and I never had my shit together enough to, uh, to ever get out of the gate. You know what I mean? Let, let alone the talent, right. but I didn't have my shit together enough. And, um, it seems like when you guys got out of the gate, you weren't weighed down by all these isms or bullshit. You, you had ambition and talent and you went and you started moving forward. Um, when right. did you start to notice like the success or, or the change in, in just within the band? Well, we had, we, we had ambition and we had talent and all those things, but you know, you have to understand too, it's very important for me anyway, to always mention, we also had a great producer and then we had a really great manager. It's not like we just did this ourselves. Right. You know, there's a lot of, there's an incredible amount of luck involved and, and, and I'm defining luck as opportunity meets pre- preparedness. I love preparation. that. That's, that's a, what that's I mean. That's a great, where's that quote come um, from? Opportunity. I, meets, I love that quote. Continue. So yeah, we had these, you know, it started to pop a little bit, um, on the first tour, which was 1990. We were on the road. I mean, we were, there was definitely some, um, you know, once we hit the road pretty steady, there was, there was always weed around. Um, 
But the other stuff, the actual drugs really that, that I was aware of, that I was thinking, oh, this is happening more often than, than not, it was 91. It was towards the latter half of the first album tour. And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons for that. And, and primarily just because, like I said, people are showing up with drugs and offering them to bands at all times. And, uh, um, and I write this in the book and uh, it's fun. I mean, I've had, I've said this for years and people have taken it the wrong way. I don't mean this with an accusatory thing at all, but Ed Harsh joined our band in January 91, our piano player. And he was a champion of the drug world. And, and by which I mean, he had done every drug. He knew he could talk about drugs in such an intellectual manner in such an informed, insightful way. And he made drugs seem really cool, which a lot of people can do. And, you know, he opened some door. I, I think, I don't think anything would have been different if we'd never had Ed join the band, but he just made things, they moved a little quicker. You know, when you've got a guy who's done all the drugs already and who can talk you about, t- tell you stories about them, it's that same thing you said, you glorify it. You think about it ahead of time and it feels cool. And then once you're in a band and when you're on the road for a year and a half straight, it doesn't matter how grounded you are or what your work ethic is or anything. It's hard to remember what it's like to actually be responsible and have anything you have to do. Like our whole world was geared around, you know, we're going to go focus for two hours today. You know, from nine to 11, we got to play a gig. You got 22 hours to fill with very little responsibility. And you might have an interview here and there. Chris certainly did the majority of the promotion back then. So for the rest of the band, you're sitting around you got, you got a lot of time to fill and it's, it's the same old story that that's, there's, that's no different from the black Rose to any other band that's ever done this. You know, it's just a, such a natural, it's just, a, it's a part of, it's part of the fabric of the touring world. You know, there's, there's a lot of time to fill and there's a lot of drugs around and, and obviously the, you know, for a lot of people who are artists of any sort, there's a, there's a, in often, often cases, there's just a predilection for that. There's a, there's a, inherent curiosity you know if you're a painter or a poet or a musician a lot of your heroes have already done a lot of drugs and talked about them and and you have internalized that and you've decided that's a part of the process whether you know it or not it it seems to me like from what i've you know taken in from you know i've read pieces i didn't think you'd ever come on the show so i couldn't read your book in time from when you agreed to come on the show and now but i've read excerpts and i i've mined it as much as i can and i've been watching old old black crows videos and interviews and and chris robinson always struck me as a romantic who um like like he loved poets and he loved Jerry Garcia yeah, and Keith much so. Richards and he loved drug culture. I loved all that stuff too, so I could totally relate. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed like it was something that um, he he wanted to be a part of it. When Ed joined mm-hmm. the band, did he have a habit or was he just a, like a kind of recreational user? No, I think he he was just a uh, you know I remember it as just whatever was around he was happy to take or not. You know what I mean? He was he was just. He was just a guy who'd come out of the blues world and, you know, he was still a pack rat, you know? I mean, if you gave Ed his per diem, it went into a sock in his bunk. You know what I mean? He was, he was living hand to mouth minute to minute. And, uh, and, um, you know, I, you know, it's funny. He, everybody has different relationships with each other. You know, my conversations with drug about drugs with Ed were always just going to be funny, just anecdotal stuff, you know, He'd crack you up. He would want to uh, crack you I, up. Cause I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing them and I didn't have a history with drugs and I didn't have dark, terrible stories about drugs. 
And so by, by its very nature, if Ed and I were talking, it was usually a hilarious story that he had or that I had read about, and I, you know, whatever. Um, and again, it's a, it's a strange conversation because as of, of the guys in the band, you know, I was the second, I did the second least amount of drugs in the Black Crows. Rich never did drugs. And then I did, I did everything to try it, you know, but I was a, I was a, I was a big drinker and then I would, you know, to me, like I could only get stoned if I had literally nothing I had to do. If you're going to put me on an eight hour bus trip and we're going to listen to records. Yeah. Let's spark up, man. Let's go. But if I'm expected to do anything beyond lay still and drink more beer and listen to music, I'm not getting stoned. I mean, I was just never able to function like that. And that was from the jump and it never changed. You know, everybody's chemistry is different, you know? Um, and, and that's kind of how every drug was to me. It's like, you know, if I did a drug, it was me doing a drug for a limited amount of time. Like I said, I never thought, okay, that's, that's, that's a better way to be on a regular basis. I didn't even have those thoughts. I didn't have to. I was never at a place where I had to consider, wait, do I want to keep doing this all the time? And I didn't recognize it as that when I was, you know, when I was watching other people's drug use increase, increase, it's the kind of thing where when you're around someone every day, you don't notice those incremental increases. You know what I mean? I was focused on the gig or the, the fact that we're watching Monty Python on a Holy Grail for the 50th time at 3 a.m. on the bus and we're all laughing. I don't know what everyone's doing when they go to the bathroom at the hotel. I don't know what's going on. I just know that, you know, it, it, it became a really, um, you know, th- there, there was clearly by the time we were making the third record, there was a big divide in the band. There was, you know, three of the guys in the band were clearly doing a lot and three of the guys weren't doing that much, if any. And, but we all functioned. I mean, it, it, the guys who weren't doing drugs weren't, I wasn't honestly concerned. I didn't think, I was ignorant about, you know, a lot of things I would now see as warning signs that, oh, we're dealing with addiction here. I didn't think it was addiction. I thought, you know, what, like you said, Chris is a romantic. Well, trust me, so was I, you know, just not about the drug part, but about the things that I was passionate about. Everybody in the band had had an element of that to them. And you, as a band that's got a lot of other issues beyond what anyone's doing chemically, the dysfunction in our band was inherent. It was there from the beginning. You know, that's what everybody was focused on. I mean, we, we had talks about each other, uh, you know, certain members or man, are they okay? And, you know, there are days you'd turn up to a, a rehearsal or a studio session and someone looked gray and you'd be like, dude, are you all right? What's going on? But, but we were in such a bubble and we were just on the go. So we just didn't have time to sit and think. We didn't break down and talk about anything, much less what, how, the amount of drugs going down. The guys who were doing drugs, they talked about drugs all the time with each other because that's what a lot of people in the drug culture do. Yes. You know, you want to relive last night so you can do it all again tonight. And for the guys who aren't doing drugs, those conversations wear really quickly. So I just would I wouldn't be around for those those things. Those things were not interesting to me. And it didn't take long before I, I knew that those were not helping. I thought they were damaging, but I didn't have a context for it and I didn't have the language and I was honestly just trying to hold myself together. I mean, that was my priority. And like I said before, I was drinking a lot in the mid, early and mid nineties. Um, so, you know, it, it, by the time we were on the second album tour, the summer of 92, it just seemed like, well, this is just the world we've created and it's never going to change. And there's going to be a lot of drugs around and I'm just going to see if I can't keep my shit together. And we're a great band and okay, let's get on with it. I know that um, that Johnny 
and and Mark and Chris were, uh, you know, uh, using. And I know that Johnny actually managed to get somewhat clean, and then and Mark just fell apart. Like from what I understand from the book, like 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 I I read a, a story you told where where you're in England and he walks into a bar and he doesn't see you and he drank like a ton of tequila and beers and you thought he was probably in withdrawal and then you mm-hmm. had to confront him. Like like right. What was his deterioration like? And like and and was Chris's the same way or not? Well, I, you know, it's a little strange. I, I don't feel that comfortable talking about this at, 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 at really in any length. I mean, what I wrote in the book is what I'm comfortable with people knowing my perspective on this is. Um, and I could go on at, at great length about my thoughts on all this, but at the end of the day, they're just my thoughts. And, you know, it's difficult to deal with, to talk about addiction when you're talking about people who may not think that they're addicts or who definitely don't think they're addicts or who haven't gotten clean. Um, you know, I, I can only talk about my experience, which was it certainly impacted greatly by what was going on around me. But, um, you know, it, it's my I don't know. I'm just not that interested in giving you my view of what someone else was going through or what their tipping points were, because forget that, I could, but I, we can, I, you know, I, it's really easy to, to say things that I are not based in anything that's close to reality for them. And I don't want to put you in any weird, I don't want to put you in a, yeah. a situation to answer a question that you're not comfortable or doesn't serve the interview. You know, I guess as, you know, as a codependent, you know, as you described in this mm-hmm. band and, um, the band is like, successful beyond anybody's wildest dreams basically right you know it's hit after hit after hit it's it's anthem after anthem like that that hits people in the heart um how disappointed were you when it wasn't going the way you know in a good way you know like when the drugs like the drugs played a part in your life you just didn't take them you know what I mean? You had to deal right. with the consequences. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, that toxicity is, is contagious. You know, um, you know, there's a reason Al-Anon is a thing. <laughs> it's like, um, no, dr- you know, drugs are, it's a disease that is communicable and contagious and it, it does affect everybody's life. You know, and again, it's one thing to say this in 2020, looking back, it's very different to be in it in 1993, 94, 95, 96, I didn't, I didn't clearly see these things as, as being what they were. I mean, I knew that there was dysfunction in the band. I felt that the band, I felt like we were a great band and I thought that we were never getting what we could. I, I didn't think we were the band we could have been though in, in a, in a, in a cohesive sense. I mean, greatness to me is in a group effort is when everybody's on the same page and everybody goes somewhere together. And if you go a little more slowly than, than some people want to, the whole point is you get somewhere together. You know, I wanted to climb Mount Everest, but I wanted to get to the top and look around with five guys and go, we did this. And and what is very clear to see in hindsight and was very difficult to see back then was that um, the drug use in the band was a huge hindrance to that because you did have these tiers. You had separate. We had a million little factions within a six piece band. You had the original founding members. You had the brothers. You had the drug guys. You had the not drug guys. You had the guys that like jam music. You had the guys that didn't like jam music. We had a million little factions. And so at the time, you know, I wasn't sitting around thinking about everyone's drug use as tearing this band apart. It just felt like the band was tearing itself apart. And that was one of the elements. But there was a lot, a lot of other things going on. Um, and it's easy to, you know, one of the things I was trying to express 
if you read the book, you just get a sense of that. It, it was just a cacophonous situation for several years there. It was like we were just on a dry, in a dryer, just tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. And we would pop out for two hours a day and play a great show and then go right back into this tumbling. You know, there's a great drive-by trucker song and the line is, you know, I've been falling so long. It's like gravity or I've been, what is it? I've been falling so long. It's like gravity's gone and I'm just floating. <laughs> it's like, it's what it felt like, you know, like the things that were initially really uh, upsetting or impactful, they became normal. And, and the, the, the tumultuous nature you just, after a while, you are, you're like kind of floating through it. You know, things that would have, you know, if, if you had taken the band in 1989 and flipped a switch and stuck them into the hopper that was 1994, every one of us would have wilted, but you go through it one day at a time. And five years later, we're dealing with, um, you know, we're dealing with a level of dysfunction that just felt totally normal. And people, you know, when you're dealing with addiction, when you're dealing with codependency, and this is one thing that anybody who has a family member or a coworker of any, this isn't the book to me is not even about a band. It's about people. And, and it's about all these issues. And my codependency is, is as big an issue that that's what kept me there long after it was pretty clear. I probably should get somewhere else. Can you, just, can you describe like what the codependency was? It's well, when you're allowing someone else's, you know, uh, it's, it's what happens with the family and friends of a lot of addicts, you know, their addiction controls your life. You're addicted to trying to help them or you're addicted to, you know, you spend your life trying to deflect, uh, things instead of dealing things head on. Like it's, it's, it's almost impossible to speak directly and act directly with an addict. Um, you end up, you know, couching conversations. Well, they're probably going to not like it if I speak directly. So I'll try it here. I'll set this up. I'll, 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 I'll try to ease into this and see if I can only get a few of the things I want out onto the table. I can't say everything, but what's the most important things. And you start cutting off parts of yourself because you know that it's not going to be well received. And this is what people do without knowing they're doing it. You know, it's just survival techniques. And like I said, when, when you get several years into a group situation where everybody's walking on eggshells and it's not, and, and, and when you're a 27 year old dude in a big successful rock band, if you acknowledge that you're walking on eggshells, it makes you feel like a pussy. So then you just say, fine, I'm not doing that. And what you don't realize it's not like you're afraid, like physically afraid. It's not like you feel you're not safe. After a while, you get worn down from, um, from trying to have direct conversations and those not being received. You get worn down from being attacked for voicing an opinion. And it happens to everybody. And, you know, everybody in the band was, we were very close. I mean, that's the thing too. This wasn't a band that, we didn't all answer want ad signs and just meet and start a band. We, two of the guys were brothers. I was one of the brothers' best friend. We grab everybody was friend. Like we 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 had to be friends. Like if we would have never thought of hiring a guy in the band or adding a guy to the band that we didn't just love. Like we initially it was like a gang. If you're in the band, you're one of us. And so, um, you know, and there's a lot of for better and there's a lot of for worse in that situation. There were no boundaries. There were no lines. Everybody was. You know, you could be put on blast by any member of the band at any time. And again, I think that anybody who's been in a, if you grew up in a family with an addict, if you worked in any job with an addict, once you educate yourself on what that life is like, this book is incredibly relatable. I mean, and I know that because I've heard that from so many people. I've had people from the business world reach out to me and say, I'd like you to talk to some of our CEOs 
about workplace dynamics. And, you know, and I'm like, wait, what? Identifying (laughs) codependence and identifying addictive behavior and identifying healthy behavior within a crew. I know I, 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 I could imagine. Um, and, and you know, the other thing I'll say is it's, it's the confusion. There's so confusing too, because in my, in the nineties, if I had labeled someone, I loved an addict, that would have been a, an insult or I would have felt like I was attacking them. I didn't know that that meant they were sick. I didn't, I didn't know how to have empathy and sympathy and love and say, you're an addict. I didn't know how to label myself as a codependent and still respect myself. It's just, you know, I don't know if he's an addict, but he's my guy, you know, and, and, and that's what that loyalty. Um, like I said, blind loyalty in a lot of cases, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's what keeps an awful lot of bands together for a really long time. I mean, the black crows are not unique in these things on, uh, at all by any stretch. Every band I've ever spent time with is a bit of a clown car, you know, and, and, and these, these can be good people. I like all the guys that were in the black crows. In fact, I loved all the guys in the black crows for years. And I have great respect for everybody's individual talents. I mean, it was a, that band in the nineties was a fricking murderer's row. That was like the 29 Yankees, right? Every guy in that band, that was the best band in the world. I still think that for, for a few years there, I think we were as good a rock and roll band as there's ever been. And we were the best rock and roll band on planet earth from 92 to 96. I, it's my opinion. I don't think it's that um, much of but, a stretch, but, but I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to say that and also label what we were dealing with and also acknowledge and educate myself about these things without it feeling like I was attacking my friends. And that's, that's something everybody who's ever dealt with addiction can relate to, I think. Because until you really educate yourself, this stuff's just terrifying and confusing. In the book, you describe uh, when Chris confronts Mark um, on his addiction, his, you know, his, his heroin addiction and his alcoholism, and you describe yeah. Chris kind of going at him like crazy and you identify what you thought in Chris was fear of seeing himself in this guy. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, um, and there, there were, there were way more instances of things like that. That's, you know, like, like a lot of the book, it's, these are just, this is one example of that. That was Thursday. You know what I mean? That was, it was a, it was a tough story and it was a tough moment, but, but the, the, when people have talked about the dramatic stories in the book, I'm like, man, I, I, it was, I just had to pick and choose which ones made sense to move the narrative along. So I was always aware of that. I mean, I think, you know, um, and I could relate to it too, because I had, I had moments where I had to stop and really go like, wait, am I an alcoholic? Am I, am I drinking? Why am I drinking? Like, why am I sitting here right now drinking my ninth beer? I'm, I'm just on the bus and I'm not going any, I'm just dry. I'm just riding along. Um, and I, and I, again, I, whatever I was experiencing, I looked around and saw the guys in my band as having it at a factor of like times a hundred, you know what I mean? Like they were just, like I said, like you said, the first time you would do a drug, you were like, I got to do that again. Tomorrow. Um, And I can't, and I can't relate to that. The first time I got drunk, I didn't have another beer for two years. You know, the first time I got stoned, I didn't have another hit of a joint for a year. It's just, and again, I don't say that for anything other than to say, thank God, because I don't think I'd still be here if that weren't the case. What was the end um, when you guys finally had to kick Mark out of the band? Like, like what was the dynamics like? And, and how could one addict kick another addict out of the band? Like, was well, the- it's you know, it's you just want it, to. It, it's. I mean, I the end was just it was just awful. It was just a sense of helplessness. 
and and I think I'm the I, I think it was pretty clear that our, our the band's trajectory had had was going down. We were running away from success pretty rapidly on the cycle of our fourth album. I mean, we were solidifying a diehard section of our fan base, but but commercial success and general success and being a part of uh, something that was moving forward and growing that was clearly gone. That was that was that was over with. And I think that Mark was a convenient scapegoat. I think that the uh, I think that there was a great resolve not to fit not for for other members of the band and even for myself to a great extent. There was I'm certainly not going to look in the mirror fully and admit what I see. That's terrifying. So let's take the weakest guy, the guy who's struggling the most. We'll just blame him. I think it's that simple. And again, that's not by design. We didn't sit around and talk about doing that. Let's let's kick Mark out because he's the weakest. But um, I think that's ultimately at the end of it. That's what it was. It's just a, you know, we're not going to look at ourselves and realize that that everybody's playing a giant part in the dysfunction here. Now, there are some people who are far more responsible for the anger and the toxicity than others. But it's not it's not as simple. Everyone's playing a part. No one's doing it on purpose. Some people are just who they are. Everybody's just who they are. Um, but I think that by the time Mark left, it was just there was just such a sense of we're going nowhere and we couldn't fix it because we couldn't admit it. We couldn't face it. So there was no way we were ever going to actually fix it. We were a band that from very early on, just just we ran through Band-Aids, man, but we never got we never got to the cure. Is that is is it around then? Like when does Jimmy Page show up to save the day? Two years after that, two years after Mark and Johnny left, and so we had done we had done another album and a whole tour cycle. It was two years, you know, it was really almost to the month. I mean, I think Mark's last show was early August of '97. Mark and Johnny, um, and then we hooked up with Jimmy in July of '99. That must or maybe have been late May, June or July, yeah. And I know I, I read how much, you know, how much you loved Led Zeppelin and how much you personally loved Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, for that matter. Um, yeah. And as a fan of both bands, like, to read your take on it, I'm just thrilled that you got to do it, you know, to be arm-in-arm arm yeah. with the hero and, 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 and play drums behind Jimmy Page, and, and he would compare you to, to John Bonham, and I, I bet that was incredibly satisfying. Uh, it, was, it was the most fun I ever had, you know, because it was... It, it's, it doesn't mean it was the most impact. I mean, I mean, it, it's, I'm not taking anything away from what the black crows accomplished. And those things mean way more in the grand scheme of things. Cause those were our accomplishments, but, but Jimmy page touring with him and playing those shows with him was sort of the best of all worlds. Like we didn't, our general band vibe went away. We were just all having fun. It was okay to have fun playing Led Zeppelin songs with Jimmy page in a way that we never allowed it to be okay to have fun in just the black crows. And that was every, everybody felt that everybody was aware of it. And it, you know, it should it could have been a great lesson for, we're really missing a big part of this, which is, this should be fun. Like we can, we can fight about the creation of music, but we're on stage every night playing it. Like there's supposed to be some levity. There's supposed to be, we got thousands of people that are here to have a great time. Let's have a great time. And the fucked up and thing we is were just, all- we never allowed ourselves. We were never that band for very long. You know, we, we could grab it, but we never held on to it. It was never a point. It was never a uh the modus operandi was never let's go give them a great show it was always let's play a great show it wasn't let's put on a great show and again for better or worse you know we got some amazing you know people can listen to all those gigs and they probably sound great you know but i know that in the moment we weren't thinking about are the fans having fun 
Right. And you were the toxic center of a sea of joy. You know what I mean? The fans are like having the greatest time of their life and you guys are like killing each other. But the story about Jimmy Page, it really reminds me about um, uh, the Beatles around uh, Let It Be when they bring in uh, Billy Preston and they're not getting along and Billy Preston comes in and they have a good time again. Because yeah. they, they don't want to look bad in front of Billy. Was it similar like that with Jimmy Page? Oh, I'm sh- I'm sure it was. I mean, well, I mean, it, but it, but it's also it's just you know for me anyway. It's like I'm playing Zeppelin songs with Page. I'm gonna have a good time. I mean, it's that simple. But generally speaking, yeah. I mean, it was always that way. You know, when we had a new member, they were generally speaking didn't see the worst of things for a little while. Anytime there's new people around, you know, you walk off stage after a show. And the guys from Soundgarden are there. You bring them back to the dressing room. We're not going to act like a bunch of assholes. You know what I mean? It's like it could be anybody when there's people around. And that's the thing. Like the Black Crows, we did have a great real chemistry with everybody. That band in the mid-90s, all six personalities were very strong personalities. And when we were entertaining people after a show in the dressing room, we'd have 50 people back there. Everybody could hold court and carry on. And we had a million inside jokes and we had a really the 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 thing that the the thing that's sad in hindsight it's not about what the band accomplished musically it's just that we did it's it's that we had these we had all the things we needed we just didn't we just had we just gave too much credence to the things that were damaging if if that makes sense like there's not one element about a rock band you could say well if they only had this they'd be better we had everything we needed we had it on stage and off you know management to personnel in the band to every everything we had is what uh, a band with less internal dysfunction could have utilized and had a a a permanent career and could have been a fixture as one of the biggest american rock bands of all time we were certainly headed that way after two albums well you were there the the only thing that could ever stop the black crows was the black crows and that is what stopped the black crows it was all internal well i mean the end of the jimmy page era that story is like it's the crazy. It's one of the craziest stories I ever read. Um, in terms of, uh, I don't know if are you comfortable telling the story? Because I would love for people to hear that story. Um, that you- well, yeah. It's, I mean, and this is all in in the book, very very clearly laid out. Basically, we were touring with Page. We did six shows in 1999, and then and then from those six shows, we we recorded the last two. We put out a live album in early 2000. It did really well. And we went back out for another round of shows in 2000. We had 55 gigs booked. And uh, Jimmy, unbeknownst to us, was dealing with a pretty significant back situation. He was in a lot of pain. We knew, we knew he had a back problem. We didn't know how severe it was. But he was having trouble. Just He wasn't having trouble with the shows, which is to say, he, well, he was, he was in pain, but he was getting, getting through it. He said the shows were his relief, if you will. He... he, he would put on that guitar every night and he would kind of forget about the fact that his back was hurting. Uh, but, but he hit an impasse. It was getting kind of rough. He got some medical attention, got it treated. We had done one leg of the five legs. So we had done, I think 11 out of the 55 shows and we were in Los Angeles on a day off and he was starting to feel pretty good. And he had a conversation with our guitarist, rich, where he, uh, Jimmy went to rich at the behest of our manager, Pete, who had said, Hey, you know, when this tour's over, the, the band has a new record deal. If you want to be a part of the new album, you know, we'd love to have you play a guitar solo on a song, or if you want to produce a track, you know, knowing we're not going to ask Jimmy to produce an album, but you know, he's, if you want to be involved and Jimmy said, Oh, that'd be great. I'll think about it. So he went to see rich to talk about it with him. 
and he and he said, you know, I've been thinking about your next record, and if there's a part, if there's a way for me to be involved, you know, I'd love to be able to do that. And what he suggested, in addition to simply playing a guitar solo, he said he had some pieces laying around of songs that he thought he would have written with Robert a few years earlier, but Plant Page Page Plant had broken up now. And he said, why don't you, me and Chris sit down and finish some songs together? I've got these riffs and we could write some, see if there, see if we could put some songs together. And if any of them work, and if you like any of them, maybe you could have one of those for your new album. And, and he said, you know, if it's, if, 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 and I could play the solo on that song. So it's like, it's more than just a guitar solo, but it's, Hey, we wrote this together. And this is a story that nobody was aware of until two years after it happened when Jimmy told me this story in London. And what Rich told him was, no, thanks, man. I appreciate it. But our new songs that Chris and I are writing are great. And we don't need new songs. We don't need any more songs. So that was his response to Jimmy Page offering to co-write some songs. Do you think that Rich was intimidated that that uh, that he would be not seen as good, that him and Chris would have some... I, 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 I have no idea, man. I mean, seriously, you're, you're, the, it's one of those things that's so I, I could speculate. A, I mean, my opinion of what would lead someone to say that is maybe right, maybe wrong. I don't know. You know, I, I, I've, I've, I know that Rich is denying that happened. I'm just telling you a story I got from Jimmy Page because Rich never cop do it to us. And why another stupid question. Why do you suppose Jimmy Page didn't just go to Chris? Like what would have happened if he had gone to Chris, do you think, in your opinion? I think well, if he had gone to Chris, Chris would have said fucking awesome, dude. Yeah. So right. why wouldn't he have just done that? Why did he go to his I think he probably I don't know, he probably just maybe he did and maybe Chris wasn't in his room and he just went up at the hotel. Maybe he called Chris's room and he didn't answer. I don't know. That's funny. But you know, but at the same time he probably thought, well, Rich is the guy putting the pieces of the songs. Rich is writing the riffs, Rich is writing the you know, if, if Jimmy's opinion maybe was that, well, Rich is the musical, you know, he's writing the parts of these songs. Maybe I'll go to him because, you know, we're both guitar players. We're both riff guys. You know, I, I don't know. But um, I know that if I, I, I'd say that if Jimmy had mentioned that to anybody else, everybody would have said that'd be fucking great. Of course. Well, this is what you say. Um, but, you know, it's again, that's like in, in the grand scheme of things, like that's a, that's a pretty jarring thing for people to have read based on the response to that story. But, but again, it's, uh, you know, it, it was just kind of, it's hard to say par for the course, but it was, it wasn't, it, it's not the most shocking thing. There was just so many of those things. And, and those, that speaks to the fact that, you know, I mean, addiction is a part of the black crow story. It's a huge part of the black crow story, but it's not the whole story. Right. No, of course. Um, you know, and, and, and again, you know, it's funny too. I'll just say this now that it's occurring to me, you know, the band was great. We were great. I love the music we made. Um, I, I don't think there's a point to write a book where you talk about music. It's like, just listen to the records. <laughs> you dig it or you don't. I can't, I can't talk people into liking music, but um, the story to me was just more about all of the things we're talking about. And, and my, my role in that and staying in something you know, I look back and, and I'm thrilled that that Jimmy Page chapter happened. It was, the, like I said, it's the most fun I ever had playing drums. But I was quitting the band when it started. I called our manager to quit and he said, whoa, really? You're quitting? Well, because Jimmy Page wants to tour. And I hung up the uh, phone and called him right back. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I was already going to be gone. I was ready to go in 99. I was fully, I mean, I lined my ducks up and made the call. And it was literally an hour after Pete had hung up with Jimmy Page's manager to set up a tour. Just when I'm out, they bring me back in kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. I was like, okay, fair enough. 
you know, and, and, and the other thing too, is I'm the only guy that's written a book, but everybody in the band, the brothers, you know, the three of us that were there from the beginning, they were both thinking about quitting. Chris was trying to quit the whole time. He was constantly wanted to be a solo. He wanted to do his own band. I don't think Rich ever wanted to leave the Black Crows, but he was very unhappy with how things were going in the Black Crows. It wasn't like, you know, when I just tell my story and I, and I, and I can't tell anyone else's story other than I can certainly say I was hardly alone in thinking, I don't think, I don't know if this is worth it. The daily question of, is this still worth my life? Um, I was not the only person asking myself that. Well, they described you. I, I just watched the old uh, Black Crows behind the music, which I loved. And they describe you Ugh. as the third Robinson brother in that. Uh-huh. So, like, obviously you were close. I, I read a lot of your friendship with Chris. I don't know how close you were with Rich. When, when, when the friendship started to, to get torn up, how difficult was that for you? How painful was it for you? It was very painful. It was horrible. Um, you know, it's, it's and when you talk about things in a band, like when I say things about, you know, Chris doing or saying things that were very hurtful, it's important for, it, it's hard for people to understand. I'm not talking about Chris Robinson, the lead singer of the Black Crows. I'm talking about Chris, my friend and my former roommate and the guy that, you know, that I've had his back and he's had mine at times, you know, like we're friends. It, it's a personal thing. I don't think there's anything in life more damaging than betrayal. You know, right. when you feel betrayed by someone that you love and support, that is, uh, it's devastating. And that's what I always felt, it, it, you know, in the, in the, when, when our friendship would, would start to fray and then when it would just, ex- and when it exploded at certain points, it wasn't, oh my God, he's fucking up our band. It was, oh man, that's my guy. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's, it's intensely personal. And that's what I mean when I said earlier, you know, we didn't all meet each other in the want ads. A lot of bands don't have that element to it. A lot of bands get together and it is like, Hey, I like how you play and you help me bring my ideas to fruition. Let's be a band together. And they start with this separation of the personal. And it's all about what we can do together. That was never the case in the black growth. Now it's easy to look back and say, yeah, it was, that's all we were. That's not true at all. We were friends. I mean, like I said, it starts with brothers and then there's, then I join and the three of us had this, undeniable chemistry as a local band. It didn't matter who the bass player was until we got Johnny. We had several bass players and until Johnny got there, it never felt like any of them was the guy that brought something to the table that was, that was equal to what we were doing as a, as a, as a three headed monster with this chemistry. And, and, you know, I think that's what great bands all have, at least initially is there's a, you know, Chris and Rich were these polar opposites and I was the first person of the many they were trying to play with. that came in and just fit right in between the two of them. You know, like I could always get along with Rich. I understood him. We could, we could communicate fairly well. He was a little suspicious of me. I thought he was a punk and that was our early relationship, but, but I wasn't confused by him and he wasn't, you know, we, we could, we found common ground enough to function very well. And in fact, when the three of us were together, we just had these roles. We were playing very early on, you know, super early on. Just it was like, you know, that and I don't know how to define them other than, you know, and that was apparent to friends in Atlanta. You know, people we knew in other bands, other musicians, people from the jump. We weren't a good band and people were going like, oh, man, you guys are going to totally make it. And what they were responding to wasn't what we sounded like. They were just responding to us. The chemistry. It was re- exactly. It was, it I, mean, was I mean, great bands are it's chemistry is 99% of the, of the equation. And so we had that. And I think that that's what, 
you know, that's what got us from 87, 88 and 89. No one having a nickel and nobody giving a shit about not having a nickel. Cause we knew we had something that you couldn't, you couldn't put together in a rehearsal space. You know, it was, we struggled greatly with the tangibles and it was the intangible that we all recognized right away. And so to, to answer your question. So when things are going awry and we're having fights and it's fine to disagree, but when you're recognizing that someone doesn't give a shit about your opinion and you're like, but we're friends. How, I don't understand that way of thinking. I can't, I don't treat people like that. And when you don't treat people like that, you, you're just gobsmacked that someone's treating you that way. You don't know how to aid, like defend yourself for your own central nervous system's sake, but you don't even know how to respond. It's so off the pale. You know, if you're not, if you're not a, if you're not a thief, you don't understand how someone else can steal. I know what you, you know mean. What I mean. Yes. If you're not, if you're not, you know, you, you sort of project what you would do onto other people. And when they don't do that, it can be a real kick in the teeth. And so, so that's what, that's what it was like for everybody. You know, Chris had a, every expectation that I would be a certain way that I wasn't. And he didn't, he's like, how can you not think this way? You know, it's the same kind of thing. I'm sure he would say that, but we didn't have those conversations. You know, we, we would get really drunk and try to have a talk where we, you know, I love you, man. You know, you do those, but, um, you know, that, that, that's what, that's what it came down to. It's, it's, it, and it's, it's, uh, it's to answer your question, it's terribly painful. And, you know, I have read a lot of things Chris said about the last few years of the band's existence where he said every was just a, everybody else was just in it for the money and it really hurt my feelings. Now, I can tell you point blank, that's bullshit. That's not true. But if he thought that was true, if he honestly thinks that, I can understand how that would be really painful to him. But far be it for him to have a conversation where he lets someone else give an opinion. You know, it's, it's, there's no, there's like, it's like a chicken and the egg con, uh, conversation. Well, what led to this? What started that? I don't think anybody ever got up and thought, I'm going to fucking put a landmine in our way today. Let me see what I could, let me see how much damage I can do. But it was done constantly. You're also talking about negotiating about honest feelings and honesty with somebody who's using, you know, and, and right. when you do that, you're not going to get the real story. The real story no. doesn't come until after the dust settles. And I don't know Chris Robinson, you know what I mean? The Chris Robinson, I know I watch on TV and I can't, and when I waited on him, he wasn't the dick he was on TV. So I imagine like he's like every, all of us, he's multifaceted. And well, of um, course, and, and hey, I, listen, listen, man, listen, man, there's no one more charming with, with a quicker wit you know, when, when he's on, it's, it's like the sun comes into the room, you know what right. I mean? And, and I'm sure that's still the case. I haven't seen him in seven years, but I'm sure that's still the case. And again, I, I'm not interested in, in, I, 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 I don't lay, I, in the book, I say he's an addict. My opinion is he's an addict. And again, I, I used to call him an asshole. Well, I don't do that anymore. I, I think he's sick. And I, and I, and I think that if, uh, but you know, but again, I haven't seen, I haven't been in a room with him in since 2014. So I don't know anything now. I just know about the guy I spent 27 years with and, and, uh, and, and I know about, you know, some of the other guys and I know that, um, you know, my, my particular sickness might not be labeled addiction, but I was just as much a mess as anybody else. It just, I think I had the kind of mess that isn't necessarily as, as damaging to other people but it sure as hell did a number on me. 
Right, right. Um, and the band itself was apart for a long time. And, and if you read interviews with anybody, everybody was saying it's never, they're never going to get back together. Chris and Rich are never going to get back together. And then right. last uh, fall, I guess, they go on Howard Stern and they're, they're going to get back together. You know, how did it, how did it feel for you when, when they reunite and you're not in it or whatever? Well, well, well it's, I knew that was going to happen long before it did. And I knew it was going to happen long before I knew it was going to happen by which I mean, their, their prospective solo careers weren't going to be enough. They weren't, neither one of them figured out a way to pay the bills. It's that simple. And, and a black crows reunion is always going to be worth a whole lot more money than anything. Either one of those guys was going to conjure up without the name, the black crows. So I, I, I wasn't surprised at all to hear that that was coming. But it didn't have, it has nothing to do with me. It never did and it never would. You know, when the band broke up in 2014, I knew right then I'm done. I don't give a shit what they do. But, you know, the, the way the band ended and then the narrative that's been spun since, which is a lot of it is bullshit. It's just, it's, it, that, that was the final. I wanted the band to be over then too. I wanted to do one last tour to say goodbye and thank you. And I thought it would be smart to go out and do one big farewell tour. That's what bands should do. Like, if nothing else, I really did want to do something at the end that sort of, you can't just, you know, the ends aren't going to justify all the means, but we can certainly put a better bow on the final chapter. And I thought that was important, not just for us. It was very important for us. Of course, it was important financially. You want to give, you know, everybody in the band a chance to say, hey, this is our last shot. Let's be smart with this. Let's go. Let's go make some money and do the right thing. And that's better for everyone's lives. We all have lives to leave. We all have families. That's, that's very, there's nothing non-pragmatic about that. But on top of that, to be able to say thank you to people who supported us for all those years. And what I, and, and again, stupid me, what I really thought was most important is that we, able to, we could do a tour and stand at the end of it and thank each other. Say, hey, man, you know, this has not been easy. And God, we killed each other. But you know what? Okay, let's shake hands and walk away like men, like fucking adult men. But Steve, we're not that's the, like, isn't that we're a not so, the kids who started this band? We've been through this and let's literally look each other in the eye and go, okay, man, we're cool. We're cool. That was, that was not what we all thought it was going to be, but we're still here and Godspeed to you. I, that's I wanted that still. I still had this dream that maybe we could pull that one out and it wasn't going to happen. Well, it's just, that's a sober thought. That's a sober, yeah, yeah. like, like grown yeah. up adult thought. And, um, and I'm a dreamer, you know, I, I'm a yeah. dreamer and I'm an optimist and I love a happy ending, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, and I'm a huge rock and roll fan. And, and the story kind of reminds me of the band, you know, when Robbie Robertson is like, we're going to end this like men at the yeah. last waltz yeah. and it's going to look good and it's going to sound good. And we're going to walk away yeah. from this thing. That was what Robbie wanted. <laughs> and nobody yeah. else wanted that, you right, know, of course. And, and, and it's like one of those things, but like in my and, and, heart, and baby, let me say, let me say this in that regard. It's funny. You mentioned that because you know, I'm team Levon all day long. Me too. Me too. But I can also say, I can't imagine what it must've been like to be in a band with Levon and Rick and, you know, those guys were out of their minds. And, they were a bunch and, of fucking junkies, total and, junkies. And, and it's, um, you know, it, it's a tough thing. I mean, I think, you know, Robbie, like the last waltz. Yeah. It was a bit, I, I totally understand his thinking. Um, you, you, a little bit too much, round hole in a square peg, you know, probably for everybody, et cetera, et cetera. 
you know, um, it's fine, but I've never thought about that. Like he was trying to do the same thing. Like, that's kind of funny, but, um, you know, I just, I was past the point of thinking the black crows had a real future. I'd, I'd long since let that go. Even when we were making records and we put out records in 2008, nine and 10, but I didn't feel like any of them was a rebirth. It was okay. We're still able to do this by the time we were, you know, at the end of the 2010 tour, it was clear it's just too much anger between, you know, we, nobody could agree on anything. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? We all have life left to live. But I just did think, like I said, I didn't think we could ever, the, the ends were never going to justify the means, but I did think, as you said, and I guess that was a sober thought, let's just for once, let's be adults about this and acknowledge and respect what we've accomplished. I mean, shit, man, we made it 25 years. That's impossible. And now that they're talking about touring at 30 years, whatever they say the reasons are for that. If it's about them being brothers again, I hope that's true. I mean, it's the saddest story that the ultimate sadness of the black crows. There's two, there's two deaths really. I mean, the, the, the band itself died in 97 when Mark and Johnny left, then it was a group and it was a really good group. It was a great group, but it wasn't what it had once been. Um, and that's okay. You know, it's like we had a great run as this very special or single minded organism. Uh, we still had times after that that were incredible that, that meant the world to me. But I think that, you know, Ed Harsh is literally dead. He's gone. That's a tragedy. And the brother's relationship has just been non-existent. That's a tragedy. I mean, I don't want to talk to either one of them. I don't care on a day-to-day level about whatever their feelings or thoughts about anything are. I mean, cause I can say, honestly, it's, they didn't give a shit what I ever thought. I mean, and it's not out of anger. It's just acceptance. It's, Oh wait, they really don't care. Okay, well then I need to slowly back away from how much I care. That's what the last few years of that band were for me. Me getting away a to a place where I was just back. Okay, I'm cool with all this, and I am cool with all this. But that said, I can still say it's it's awful what they're you know the, the, all they have is each other. I have seven siblings. Right. You know, if I'm on the outs with one, I got six more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and and siblings are your life partners. So if you know, if the two of them are genuinely back and having a, a, a positive relationship, man, that's awesome. And if this tour is the only way they know how to do that, great. But it's got nothing to do with me. It never did have anything to do with me, and it never would have anything to do with me because the truth is, if they were interested in it being, a, if, if me being a part of it, I'm not interested in being a part of it. There's nothing that makes me want to go back and rehash music that was played 30 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, we were never that kind of band. The Black Crows were never the kind of band that would have gone out and played their first album top to bottom. And I thought that was something that was pretty cool about the Black Crows. So that's nothing that would have ever interested me. What about um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, if we got in, I think that'd be awesome and I'd go, but I would also bet my house that we will never be a part of that institution. Why? Because of the anti-corporate stance or whatever? Like well, why the not? Anti, the anti-a lot of stance. Not anti-corporate, but anti-everybody. I mean, you know, you got to have a lot of friends in this industry. I think the Black Crows have probably had the most successful long-term career of any band that alienated just about everybody they met. Right. I don't know that anybody's been more of a, of a uh, nonsensical gadfly to promoters and agents and managers and labels, you know, not doing ourselves any favors, but just pissing on everybody else. And, and I just don't think that there's... You know, I, I just know from talking to people in the industry for years, it's just not a band that, you know, outside of the people that love the Black Crows, it's it's just another band from the 90s. 
you know, the last time that the band toured in 2013, it was the biggest tour we ever had, but we're a nineties band. That's how the majority, that's the consensus view. And that's because we never thought about, cared about, or did anything to protect our legacy the way most bands do. And so I think the rock and roll hall of fame, there's so many, there's, it's a lot of, when I say it's a political thing, I don't mean that like, you know, Foo Fighters are going in the second they're able to, right? That's not because Dave Grohl's been planning that, but he's just a, he, who doesn't love Dave Grohl? You know what I mean? It's like bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana, bands that go in right away, um, you know, have, have played the game at least enough to where, like I say in the book, you don't have to make friends, but you can't make enemies. We made a lot of enemies. Do you think and, if Kurt Cobain had lived, they would have gone in right away? Because he was kind of a dick to people like that. Oh, I have, I have, I have, I mean, who knows? I mean, if they had, you know, if he had lived, they might've, uh, I, I think I, this is all I know about Kurt Cobain. I thought bleach was a great record. I thought nevermind was a great record. And I thought in utero was a great record. So the kid went three for three. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what else is there's nothing to, there's no reason to speculate. I just mean like he was also a little bit of a gadfly. Like he, he was resistant. I don't know if he was that way behind the scenes to promoters and, and okay. radio station program directors right, right, and right. label executives. Right. I don't know that he was that to those people. Right. I think he had a short fuse with a lot of music writers, which, which that's fine. That doesn't, everybody's like that. I think he had a short fuse uh, with other bands and that's fine. Uh, but, but the, but the people who are, you know, going to sit down in a room in Cleveland and say who gets in this year and who doesn't, I don't know that Kurt Cobain alienated those people. I think all those people still wanted to be, hang out with him. Right. If okay, so if they invited you, if they induct the uh, Black Crows into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I don't think is a stretch, you say you go, but would you play? Yeah, of course. All right. Yeah, I sure. I mean, I, I mean, somebody people ask me all the time, like you're saying, there's no way you'd ever play with the Robinsons again, and the answer is no. That's what I'm saying. I would never be in the Black Crows again. I wouldn't tour again. If if a if a if a giant festival were booked or, or a, if there were an opportunity to raise a ton of money for a cause I believed in, of course I'd go play with them. I mean, it's, it's not insanity, you know, it's just, but, but the black crows is a functioning band that I have any part of that's over. That's all. No, I get it. And, and it's a different time anyway, but I personally, as a dreamer and, and, and lover of, of good endings would love to see Chris make amends and, and love instilled. Cause this thing was such a huge chunk of your life. You were I mean, every, and everybody describes you as the heart of that band. And if you watch a show or if you listen to the music, your part is, uh, is glue. And, um, and that yeah. music moved so beautifully. And, um, you know, I hope, I, I just hope as a, as a fan of humanity that something nice could come at the end of it, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that would be nice. I think there's a lot of, there, there, there would have to be a lot of changes made to the way people live their lives. And, and that, you know, look, I, I'm, it's hard to sound like I'm, uh, it's, it's weird to say I don't mean this. There's no judgment here, but there really isn't. I'm just, again, I'm trying to speak pragmatically. That's not something I ever think about. It's not something I'm think I'm not hoping for it. It's, it's honestly, it's like the last run of that band the last few years like i said that was every my every day was me stepping back and stepping back from the the emotional connections you know i started going to al-anon meetings at some point and they were it was an incredible thing to get involved in al-anon because the focus was just solely on me is that's about fixing yourself and you know the whole idea of withdrawing with love from somebody like hey man 
I can, I can hold these two thoughts in my head. I love you and I love what we've done, but I can't be in a room with you ever again. <laughs> and I'm okay with that, you know? And, and again, like anybody that's been through these sort of issues can relate to that. If you've gotten some understanding of the language, if you've done therapy, you know, if that's through my being in therapy or me going through Al-Anon or, all, or whatever I've done, I've gotten to a place where it all makes sense to me. And I, it, it, you know, I had to, everything that happened in that band and the things that led it to happen, they make sense to me. It fits in my in my mind and in my heart. Like I, I see it for what it was. I know that's how I'm always going to see it. And I'm thankful for it. I'm so grateful for the entire experience. Would I wish things had been different? Well, of course. I mean, shit, I would, I'd change a million things, but, but that, but I don't even, but I don't have the energy to even think about that. And I mean, I'm busy. I have a whole life, you know, and I've, another thing I've said, and it's very true is the last six years of my life have been the best six years I've ever had of my life. And that's not a, that's not a, it's not an angry statement. It's a, thank God that's, I'm giving myself credit for working on myself enough to get to a place where I could say that and mean it. You know what I mean? Like I, I, you know, no one, no one's ever loved the black crows more than I loved the black crows. But I, you know, like at some point you just go, okay, I'm good. This, this is, this is not going to go any further for me and I got to get on to the next thing. And you have a career where you're not dependent on people that are not dependable. And you have a life where you're not somebody, you know, right. you're not in that situation where you put yourself up against something that isn't going to be healthy for you. So well, I, that, I mean, that, that's a real, you know, and that's a thing too, that, and again, this happens in so many bands, you know, um, the, the feeling of it's, it's no different than being, if you're, if you're a kid growing up in a house with an addict, you know, you don't trust that the earth isn't going to shake every day. You, you commit to a plan knowing full well, this probably isn't going to happen right? because someone's going to change their mind halfway through because that's what they do. Like we can, we can have this, you know, we had the greatest manager uh, imaginable, you know, guy outworked everybody. The most creative member of the black crows team was Pete Angelus because he could do everything. He could put his hand in every pot and come up with something that, that made sense. And after a while, you just realize, like, it doesn't matter what strategy, it doesn't matter what brilliant vision, it doesn't matter anything. When you're dealing with, with unreliable and undependable people, you're fucked. Because that's what you have. I understand. Yeah. Um, now, the currency of dopey is usually a dopey story. You know, okay. some sort of great or stupid or funny drug story. Can you give us one drug yeah. story? The first time I did acid, we were in Barcelona and it was in 1995 and I was 29 years old <laughs> and we were, uh, it was the last, the second or third to last day of it. We had a day off in Barcelona in, uh, and I wrote about this in the book and then it was edited out. Um, okay. This is good but, then. All right. Yeah. 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 So we were, we had a day off this band called Dylan fence from North Carolina was our opening act and their guitar player who had just joined for that tour is a guy named Johnny Irion. He's a, uh, of, of an artist who still makes records and in fact he produced an album up in Massachusetts last year that I played on with a group called the Whiskey Treaty um, uh, it's he's a, you know, still a good friend but this kid Johnny Irion in 1995 was in the opening band we were sitting at the Cafe Zurich in Barcelona on a beautiful late February sunny day band and crew an opening band all of us at this big outdoor cafe having our espressos and then a couple hours later everyone's having beers and we had this big it's at the top of the Rambles in Barcelona so we had a group of tables that were sort of like our little section 
And we were all camped there throughout the whole day. Some, you'd get up and go get lunch, come back. There's still people there. Like we just had a hold on this block of tables at this beautiful outdoor place. And so everybody's bopping in and out throughout the whole day. And later in the early in the evening, long after everyone's shifted to drinking beers and we're, you know, it's just a two days left and we're all going home. It had rained for seven straight weeks and the sun was out. It was 62 degrees. Everyone is like, we've just gotten out of jail. And Johnny said, Hey, I got a couple hits of acid. Anybody want some? And nobody took him up on it. And I thought, I'm going to be 30 this summer. I need to do acid before I turn 30. Like, okay, you know, and I was just in such a good headspace with everything right then. I thought this is a great time for this probably. So I took a hit and, um, and was like I said, I was already well into having been drinking for a few hours and just sat there and it slowly came on and it wasn't really strong at all. And I was, I was immediately, I did love this. This was my, the, the LSD is the drug I've loved more than like, I've never had a bad moment, right. With acid. It was always, always worked for me. Now that said, I always got very clean acid and I was in a position, I guess, where the people who were procuring it knew what they were getting. Um, cause obviously you can get some bad stuff. Uh, so I'm fortunate in that regard too, but, uh, me and my cousin Jeffrey who worked for the band and then our t-shirt guy, this guy, Kevin Wegman, the three of us at some point get up and we're just going to go take a stroll. And we just end up walking off the Rombles. There's all these side alleys and we are out for the whole night. Just bar hop, you know, one bar, get a beer, check the scene out, go to the next bar, go to the next bar. This one's playing great music. We'll hang here for an hour. You know, we're just up all night rolling around on a night off. And I'm, I'm not flying tripping, but I'm feeling it for, you know, I'm really having a good time. I just feel great. And I'm thinking, and I am thinking, oh my God, I might have to do this tomorrow. Like that is the one time right. I'm like, I'm doing this again. And, um, but the, the craziest thing, we walked out of a bar. It was, you know, sun wasn't up. It was, but it was probably four in the morning. And um, we're walking out of this narrow doorway. It's three of us. And there's two guys coming in. And Jeffrey just bumps into one of the guys. And he's just drunk. And not, he goes, yeah, watch it, man. Like, it, just to make us laugh. Like the way you do. Well, the guy turns and spins on him in the alley. And he pulls out a knife. And it's a real knife, like a big one. And the guy says, what'd you fucking say? Something like that. And Jeffrey freezes. And I immediately go, hey, hey, man, cool. Hey, it's cool. It's cool. We're, dude, he's just drunk and we're just having fun. I'm so sorry, man. Seriously, no problem. Because this guy was a real, he's the guy that literally carries a knife and pulls it. He wasn't joking. And that was obvious. And, I, and then the guy said something else. And I just remember saying, like, look, we're just we're 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 dumb, drunk Americans and we're taking him home. So sorry, man. I'll buy you a drink. I'm just I just am rambling. And the guy says, OK, cool. And we kind of shake hand like he just pump hands. OK, we're leaving. Bye bye. And we I turned to walk away and Jeffrey and Weggs are looking at me and they're just like, what? They just can't. They're just stunned faces. And I go, what? And Weggs goes. I didn't know you spoke French. And I said, what are you talking about? And Jeffrey looks at me and he goes, what, what, what did you say to that guy? And I said, what do you mean? What did I say to the guy? I said, he's drunk. We're going home. I'm really sorry. And they were like, yeah, but you were speaking French. And I was like, that's not true. And, they, and I was like, wait, I was, and I was like, holy shit. Wait a minute. Like I had four years of French in high school and a year in college. And I'd had a French exchange student in my house. And I was always, enough of a francophile I, I knew my nouns and verbs but i'm not conversational 
And they were, we walked back to the hotel and the whole time they were freaking out. Like, dude, you were just yelling at that guy in French. And I was like, wow. And we were, and then we get back to the hotel lobby and there was a brochure in the lobby and I picked it up and it's in every language and I'm reading the French and I know I'm reading, I'm translating this whole paragraph about the hotel in French. And I, I'm like, holy shit, man. And I'm like, and I remember Latin, the joke I was saying at the time, like, I got to get some more of this acid. This is amazing. Like it brought all my French back. And so I went to the room and I was laying there and I was like, this is the best thing ever. I can't believe I can remember all my French if I have acid. And I woke up the next day when I, and I finally fall asleep. When I got up the next day, all gone, not, not right back to my nouns and verbs. And, uh, and we were talking about the next day and they were all like, man, you know, that was like the, the Rosetta stone acid. I was like, Johnny, where did you get that stuff? You know? And he goes, I just got us from dude in England. And I'm like, Oh great. Some dude in England unlocks the key to my language issues. It's amazing. That's an amazing story because like most people are just seeing visuals. You're channeling French. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. It's perfect. Yeah. Well, Steve Gorman, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a real honor for me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. No worries. And um, I hope I, I, I talk to you again sometime. And I hope that the end chapter of the black crows for you is a uh, positive and full of love and success in the end. I am, I, I am living a very positive life and I am full of love. So it's already, it's already good for me, bro. You're there. And, and, and the book, I'm going to say it before I play the interview is called uh, hard to handle the life and death of the black crows, a memoir by the great Steve Gorman, who also does a radio show. And, um, Such a thrill, Steve. Thank you so much. So there he was, Steve Gorman. And that, that was like, I said to him at the end, it was thrilling, but even looking back, it was so thrilling for me. The Jimmy Page story just blows me out of the water. And I do hope one day to get uh, Mark Ford on the show, who is the guitar player on heroin, or of course, Chris Robinson and see what he makes of all this shit. But Steve Gorman was, uh, just an awesome, awesome storyteller, an awesome, generous guest of Dopey, and I really appreciated having him on. I also loved the LSD learning French story at the end. Steve Gorman hits us with the acid French telling Dopey story. But it is not a Dopey episode without hearing from somebody in the Dopey Nation, and that somebody this week is a hardcore Dopey herself. Her name is Amber Renee, and this story is pretty crazy. Here she is, Amber Renee. Hey, Dave. Hey, Dopey Nation. Uh, this is Amber Renee from Texas. Uh, longtime listener, uh, recent Patreon member at $5 a month. Um, if you're not supporting the show, what are you doing? Um, so I have a Dopey tale. This involves... Um, methamphetamine and uh the first time i met a cook so back in oh two i was a junior in high school and uh i was a i was a popular cheerleader i sold drugs (laughs) um and we used to go to this place called shuck and jive and shuck and jive was a uh, was in Dallas. It was a Cajun restaurant, you know, like heavy Southern themes and alligator and like all that. Um, and so, if you were a pretty fine young thing, you could get in uh, underage, right? And as long as you dressed 
dressed right. Um, so I'm talking about, like, skirts that were, like, maybe five inches long, like, the tiniest, barely anything uh, would get you into the door and drink for free. So, of course, me and my girlfriend started doing that um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and um, we actually got hired under the table to show up because we would always get the bar popping. And so me and my girlfriends are about four four of those fish bowls. Have you ever seen those fish bowls? They're like literally the size of a fish bowl. And I think they're pretty much a garbage can punch. They're like everything in it. And so me and my girlfriends are like on our third one. Um, and we had pre-gamed before. I had um, a belly full of Adderall in my system already. And... Um, so, long story short, I get alcohol poisoning. I'm vomiting in the bathroom. And <laughs> this woman, uh, affectionately known as Heather, <laughs> uh, she, she like, puts something on the sink and says, like, get up, come and clean your face off, right, and snort this line. And so I snort this line. And um, instantly... Instantly sober, like instantly the Adderall roll, roll, like wore off the fucking alcohol. I wasn't even drunk anymore, um, and it it smelled like cat piss, right? So I was like, okay, so this isn't coke. I don't know what this is. It's kind of clear, like kind of not see through, but it's cloudy, right? And when she broke it up, it looked like coke. It was all powdery and shit. Anyways, um, so fast forward a week later, <laughs> and I'm living with this woman <laughs> in this little tiny town, um, like, that's surrounded by ranches and cows, and, like, there's all this acreage. And uh, anyway, so I move in with her, and by the end of the week, I am selling meth. Um, uh, and then by the end of the month, I met the cook, and the cook was this dude named Bubbles. And so if you've ever seen Trailer Park Boys, <laughs> he looked exactly like Bubbles, like big, like Coke, thick glasses, big belly, um, but this huge tweaker. And so he lived on this ranch with, like, 65 acres, and you had to drive a good eight minutes from the gate to the entrance, as I'll call it, right? This motherfucker, Bubbles, made a compound of trailer homes <laughs> in the shape of a pentagon. Like, ah, so this man, like, pretty much made tweaker heaven. Um, so one trailer part, one trailer home was um, was the kitchen where he cooked the shit, and the surrounding ones, the other four ones, one was like a wood shop room, and one was for uh, blowing glass, and the other one uh, was arts and crafts, <laughs> and then the last one, the one you had to come into, was this room that was like like completely from like floor to ceiling little like eight to ten inch security cams right this motherfucker probably spent i don't know a hundred k rigging up this ranch with cameras and there's literally cameras 
everywhere. And so, of course, we would get high on Tweak. Um, and at this time, I was I smoked Tweak. And um, so we would we would get fucking spun out on these gravity bongs with Tweak, and stay out. And he would give like he had an armory that was underground, and so he would he would make guns, <laughs> and we would shoot these like fucking modded out like shotguns and shit. Anyways, Tweaker Paradise. Um, so okay, reverse. Met this chick, Heather, because I was thrown up in the bathroom. Week later, I'm living with Heather. Month later, I'm at the cook's house, and uh, we fall in love. <laughs> so a month after that, I'm living with him. I'm, like, maybe 80 pounds at this time. With I had pulled all my hair out, like, hence the reason I have a lot of short hair now is I have a hard time growing my hair out because I used to – uh, pull my hair out um, in manic phases. But anyways, um, so long story sh- super short, we broke up after we got kidnapped by <laughs> some people uh, from Arizona. <laughs> and um, we got put in a trunk together and we were tweaking out really bad. And we were driven to Brownsville, which is like the very like southern tippy tip of Texas, right by the border. I mean, you could see the border uh, the border wall, or the border, like, chain link fence, pretty much, um, and he took us out to this hill, and, like, we'd get out, puts us on our knees, and has a gun to, like, both of our heads, him and his goon, and, um, it turns out, like, the dude that kidnapped us was hyper-tweaked and was up for, like, six days already, and he was convinced that the the cook was working for the DEA or something. And um, <laughs> so, like, it was, like, a super serious situation. But I remember he uh, got pistol whipped, and his tooth came out of his head and nicked my nose, right? So it, like, cut, like, the little, like, the bridge between my lip and my nose. Anyways, long story short, I ended up getting an abscess, on, like, inside my nose, because when he cut my skin with his tooth, it was, like, really infected. <laughs> so I had to go in uh, the ER, like, two weeks later after that. Um, but, so, and honestly, after this event, I didn't do Tweak much after that. Like, Tweak really fucked up my life for, a, like, a good two, three years. Um, and then I discovered, like, crack. And for some reason, crack was where it was at for me. <laughs> but, uh Anyway, so that's that's my Bubbles the Mess Cook story. I hope that's legit and you can use it. Um, I have typed up like four or five more um, that I'm going to send in because people keep asking me to tell more stories. So um, anyways, if you're not doing it already, join the Dopey Nation uh, on social media and get a part of our Zoom meetings because it's absolutely rad. Um, and I love everybody. Toodles. Um and stay safe, Dopey Nation. Love you, Amber. Bye. That was the great Amber Renee. I love the tooth flying off and hitting her in the face. Great story. Great voicemail. Please send in dopey stories. Make them dopey. Make them funny. Keep them around five minutes. Send them to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. 
If you don't want to do it for me, do it for my dad or do it for Chris. Anyway, this was the first bonus episode. I hope you guys loved it. It is always a pleasure to make the show. I want to thank Sam for all of his work. I want to thank the Facebook peeps. I want to thank the great Cormac. I want to thank Misty. I want to thank everybody out there in the Dopey Nation who is uh, chugging along. I want to thank all the Zoom hosts in the wake of all this controversy. I want to say rest in peace, William McAvoy. And I want to say stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris and Todd and William and Andrew and Troy and all the people that we've lost and that we love. And thank you. I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very 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 hard to find and I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad so bad I want to be good so bad bad desires all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And these suckers make me mad And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had 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 And these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And I want to call my dad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had